So we are working our way through some parables that Jesus speaks. That's what Mike and I decided to do after Easter, partially because I was going to be out so much. And that's a really easy thing to ask guest preachers to come in and preach about, right? Just pick, just pick a parable that you want to preach on. There's plenty of them. Jesus preaches a lot of them. And surely you have a parable that you'd like to get up here and talk about for 20 minutes. So that's what we've been doing But we've also been sprinkling in a couple of really difficult parables. So if you were here when Clay Farrington preached, you know that he talked about the parable of the unmerciful servant. And that's a really tough parable that Jesus preaches in Matthew's gospel. And the parable that we're going to look at today is another one of those really difficult parables. And I kind of regretted choosing it for my week back before I was out. Like I picked it and I was like, oh yeah, I'll be fine. I can totally preach on this parable. And I kind of forgot. And then I got in the office on Monday and read it. And I was like, dadgummit, why did I pick this? But I stuck with it because that's what Mike is talking about over there. And that's what we're going to talk about over here. So we're going to read the parable of the talents. I'm sure a few of you are familiar with it. It's a long parable, so just stick with me. It's very similar to that parable of the unmerciful servant, and it's very close to that parable at the end of Matthew's gospel. So we're in the chapter, we're in chapter 25 of Matthew's gospel, and the parable is verses 14 to 30. So let's read it together. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. At once the one who had received five talents went off and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And to the one with two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received one talent also came forward saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter, so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master replied, You wicked and lazy slave, you knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I do not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they think they have will be taken away. 
As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we all say together as a joyful people, thanks be to God. Quite the text to preach on your first Sunday back after four weeks off and sleep deprivation, right? It's a tough one. We're in this sermon series right now looking at the parables of Jesus. And when you hear that, you think about, oh, great, we're going to talk about that parable where where the farmer is throwing all of those seeds or the parable where the Samaritan stops and helps the man on the side of the road. I think that's what Mike talked about last week or that beautiful story where the prodigal son takes all of his father's money and goes away and, and spends it all on nothing and then comes back empty handed and he's accepted back into the arms of his father. But when you find yourself towards the end of Matthew's gospel, when Jesus is starting to get closer and closer to the cross, you realize that at the end of his ministry, Jesus wasn't pulling any punches with his teachings. He really wasn't. He teaches some of his harshest and sharpest teachings in the gospel of Matthew right when he gets up to the cross. And I think the parable of the talents is an example of that. And there are other really tough ones in Matthew's gospel, right? The parable of the wedding banquet, if you remember that, there's a Lucan version that's really easy to swallow. And then Matthew has Jesus telling a version that is much more difficult to swallow and also ends with weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then, of course, the parable of the unmerciful servant, which we've already talked about that Clay covered a few weeks ago. I think this parable, the parable of the talents, is of those three more apocalyptic parables that Jesus tells kind of clustered together, this one is probably the one that gets preached on the most from pulpits in churches. But it's still just a really itchy parable, isn't it? That's how I would describe it. It just, it just leaves you feeling a little squirmy, doesn't it? Just, just a little bit itchy. And I think the reason that it feels like that is kind of obvious, isn't it? It's because of the ending. Man, that's a tough ending. I mean, you get up to the talents and you see that the one buried one, he buried his own talent and you think, oh yeah, he's probably not going to do as well. But you don't expect that ending, do you? It sticks with you. It's, It's because of the way this parable ends that it feels so itchy. And for some reason, when I read this parable, it seems like when I'm finished, all I can remember is that nasty ending. And the anger that we see from the master. Hear it again. This is one of the most condemning statements that we find in the New Testament and certainly from the mouth of Jesus. For to all those who have, more will be given and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So you have this rich master who gives his servants talents, which in our parable are sums of money. To be specific, one talent was worth about 6,000 daily paid wages, which equates to about 15 to 20 years worth of wages for a day worker. So these are some massive amounts of money that we're talking about. So the master distributes various amounts of talents to all of them, each according to his own ability. And then he, he leaves, right? He goes on a trip and the servants do the best they can with it, each in their own way. And then when the master returns, they're forced to show him what they have done with his money. 
And then you, you blink, and before you know it, the master is losing his cool and beating up on the poor little servant that only received one talent. And ever since I can remember, that response of the master has bothered me. It has. And I've heard a lot of sermons on this parable, and I watched quite a few this week. And so many preachers dance so quickly past the anger of the master. And instead, they focus on the talents and and how we're supposed to take what God has given us and use it and make the best of it and, and multiply it, right? As this parable has been used over the years and reflected on and preached on, we've kind of come to understand the talents that are given to the slaves in the parables to be loosely interpreted as all the great gifts that God has given us as his children. So we can understand it as financial, right? Like, like we do in the parable. This is a text that gets used a whole lot during capital campaigns and fundraising ventures for churches. But it can also be used to talk about the spiritual gifts that God gives us. The gifts that we are all gifted with and and how God expects us to be a people that are using our gifts and our God-given abilities. Because we've been given all sorts of of talents. So in some ways, it, it does. It makes sense to just jump straight to that question, doesn't it? It makes this parable a whole lot easier if we just don't acknowledge the anger that we find from the master and instead just say, well, how are we using our talents? And to be fair, I've preached that sermon. I've preached this parable before, and and I didn't really talk about the anger. Because I didn't didn't really know what to do with it. And it just felt a whole lot easier and a whole lot cleaner to just kind of act like it wasn't there. And instead talk about how we as a people of God are supposed to use the gifts that God has given us. But for some reason, I just couldn't do that this week. Because the question that was stuck in my head was, why does the master get so angry? That's a fair question, I think. Why does the master get so, so angry? Why? I mean, I expect him to be a little frustrated with the one talent guy, but but why does he get so angry? It's not like he went and spent it all and came back empty-handed. And I'll admit, I think maybe the reason that I get so hung up on this is because I find myself relating to this servant that only received one talent. I don't mean to offend anybody, but I think probably very few of us are two or three, even five talent people, right? There's probably one thing in our life that we're really good at. Like there's, there's probably one area of your life where you just absolutely crush it, where you are the best of the best and you know it and everybody else knows it, right? I don't know if it's cooking or algebra or writing. I don't know, but I'm betting there is something in your life that you just own it, right? It's automatic for you. But two or three, I don't know. I mean, I just, I feel like I'm a one talent guy. And because of that, I find myself relating the most to the servant in our parable that receives just one talent. And I'll admit it, I think the one talent servant was maybe a little overly cautious. He didn't go out and wheel and deal like the other servants did with their talents. And so naturally, he didn't get any sort of return on his investment like the others did. But remember, he only had one. He only had one. I think it's a whole lot easier to go out and risk a little bit when you have more than one of something. 
When you have five of them or you have two of them, it's a little bit easier to roll the dice, right? To make a risky investment because you know that it's not all you have. But for this one talent servant, he was going to have to go all in, wasn't he? The temptation that we see our one talent servant face and and give into is to just focus on keeping what he has. I think the parable even says that he was afraid. And so he did all that he knew to do, which was to bury it, to keep it safe, and to know that he could go dig it up when the master came back. Not to mention that the, the Jewish law of the day, it read like this. Whoever immediately buries property entrusted to him is no longer liable because he has taken the safest course possible. So this one talent servant, he's toting the letter of the law, isn't he? He takes what he's been given. He goes into his backyard. He buries it as deep as he can dig, knowing that it'll be kept safe for when the master returns. He's doing the most responsible thing that he can think of, and he's doing what he thinks is right. So I don't know, forgive me if, if I just, if I wince a little bit at the end of this story when the master returns and just lowers the boom on the guy that just got one. I could deal with the master accusing him of poor investment strategy. I could deal with him laying into him for not thinking creatively with, with what to do with his finances. But man, his reaction, the way he beats up on him, it just, it just seems so extreme to me. So why, why does the master get so angry? The only way this week that I was able to start to make sense of that question, to make sense of the master's extreme behavior at the end of the story, was to remember the extreme behavior that we find at the beginning of the story. So I want you to hear the first verse again. It's, it's in a different translation, so it's worded slightly differently, but I want you to hear it. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who was leaving on a trip. He called his servants and handed his possessions over to them. Can you imagine that scenario? I mean, that's some kind of master, right? And, and, that's, and that's some kind of slavery, some kind of, of servanthood. This master who's going away for an unknown amount of time, maybe forever, maybe not, calls in his three slaves, and before he goes, he gives them everything. He, he gives them everything. He gives them everything he's got. The keys to the Cadillac, the code to the wine cellar, his social security number, his pen for his bank account, his stock portfolio. He gives them everything. Out of the blue, his master calls his servants into a room and gives them everything that he has. And then he leaves. I want you to notice that, that it's on the way to the cross that Jesus tells this parable about a Lord who called his servants into the room and gave them everything while he was preparing to be away for a while. Do you see some of that connective tissue that's there? Can you read between the lines with me just, just a little bit? This master is giving his slaves, he's giving his servants, he's giving people that don't deserve it everything that he has, everything that he has to give. And Jesus, too, is on his way and getting closer and closer 
trying to prepare to also give away everything that he has for a people that certainly don't deserve it and may not always know what to do with it. We get so caught up with the extreme anger and and, and extreme behavior that we find at the end of the parable that I think it's so easy to forget the extreme behavior that we find from the master at the at the beginning, that he's the one that starts all of this, that he gives them everything. I remember in college, a friend of mine almost flunked out his first semester. He got back like a, a really bad set of grades, and, and it wasn't because of his ability. He was a good student. Uh, it was because of choices that he was making. You know how that goes, right? First semester, freshman year of college. And I remember overhearing a conversation that he was having with his mom on the phone. I just happened to be in the room when she called, and oh my gosh, you could tell that she wasn't pulling any punches, right? I mean, she was furious. She was so angry with him, and she was cutting him deep, too, like only a mom can do in a situation like that. And what I found myself thinking was, she needs to chill out. Like, I I like him. He's not a bad... She needs to take a chill pill. She needs to relax. She needs to start to take it a little bit easier on him because I don't think this is going to make him do any better in school. But she just relentlessly lit into him over the phone for about 15 or 20 minutes. But then a later conversation with my friend kind of revealed to me what was really going on here. It helped me put the disappointment and the anger that his mom felt towards him in context. He told me that he was the first person in his family to go to college and that his mom, who already had a full-time job, had taken up a night job cleaning to try and pay for him to go through school. So I realized that his mom was working twice as hard to put him through college as he was in college. And then I realized that she had a right to be angry. And, And maybe the master does too. Don't get me wrong, this is a tough parable. And I don't have all the answers for you with how we're supposed to deal with the anger of the master. My goal for us this morning was to just not be a people that ignored it. I think his mom had a right to be angry. And when I really realized the gift that is given from this master to these servants, I wonder if the master doesn't also have at least a little bit of a right to be angry. Because I realized once, once I focused on both sides of the coin, the abundance of the gift and the frustration and the anger that we see at the end of the parable, I realized that when I first started looking at this text, the question that I was asking was, Master, how could you do this to this cautious servant? How could you get so angry? And what I found myself asking towards the end of the week was this. Master, how could I do this to you and your sacrifice? I started with questioning the master's anger, and I ended with questioning my own actions. Here's what I realized this week, and it helped me make sense of this parable, and and I hope that that it helps you too. Love requires risk, doesn't it? That's probably something that all of you know. Love requires risk. 
Madison and I are parents now. We already talked about that. This is my first week back from paternity leave. And we are more in love than we could have ever imagined. That's what every parent says, right? But it's so true. More in love than we could have ever imagined. But let me tell you, it is risky. It's risky. We went on a family walk a few days ago, which is a big outing for us these days. And it was one of our longer walks. And and we got home and it was hot outside and we got in the house and I began to pick up Reed out of his stroller, out of his car seat. And I was unstrapping him and all that. And I picked him up and I realized that his back was wet. And I was like, oh my gosh, he must have been hot. I just assumed it was sweat. I think I even turned to Madison and I was like, Madison, he is hot in here. We had too much on him. He's sweating. And a rookie mistake, right? I mean, anybody that's a parent knows good and well that's not sweat. I looked down at my hand and I realized that it was yellow poop. It wasn't sweat. It's risky. Being a parent is risky. I was home for work. This was my first week back at work and Madison had just fed him. I was home for lunch and I was burping him and he spit up. And oh my gosh, y'all, that burp cloth. I mean, it was that close to being on my shirt. That close. It's risky. Being a parent is risky. But that's true for other relationships in our life that require love. Parenthood, marriage, friendship, anything with love requires us to be vulnerable It requires us to be tender. It requires us to be willing to to give up ground, to put the interest of others ahead of the interest of ourselves. And and look, that is just plain. It's it's risky. It's risky. And being a follower of Jesus is no different. It's risky. Saying yes to the abundant grace and the love and the gift of new life and, and purpose and passion that we receive from Christ It's a little risky. It's risky because it's not a gift that we receive and then go about our normal lives like it never happened. It's it's not a gift that we receive and, and bury and stick in our backyard to dig up on the last day to show what we have. This is a gift that we're meant to use. This is a gift that we're meant that we're meant to put to work. This is a gift that's supposed to change us and mold us. And make us someone new. Because when we accept that gift, it means saying yes to where God is leading us. It means being willing to love our neighbor as ourself. It means that we're going to be willing to put the interest of others over the interest of ourselves. It means being generous with our talents. Whether it's your time or your money or, or, or with the gifts that God has given you. It means trusting where God is leading you, even if you're not totally sure where you're going to end up. Living faithfully into the gifts and into the promises that we receive from Christ, it forces us to take some risk. Because we can't just bury the things that Christ has given us. But remember... Jesus doesn't call us to do anything that he hasn't already done. He doesn't. Christ first put it all on the line, didn't he? He teaches this parable when he's on his way to do just that. Christ led the way by first giving us everything that he had. Everything that he had to give, he gave us. He just simply calls us to do the same thing. Once we've received the gift from him. 
This week, if, if, if you can remember, I, I, want you to do, I want you to do one thing. I want you to grab an Expo marker or grab a sticky note or grab a piece of tape and a piece of paper. And on your bathroom mirror, I want you to write two questions. What has God given me? The answer is everything. But I'd love for us to think about specifically what, what has God given us? What, what has God given me? And then the second question is this. How am I using it? Because I think that's what this parable is, is pushing us to ask. What is it that God has given me? And how am I using it? Because, friends, if we have the gifts that God has given us buried in our backyard, the first thing we need to do is go and dig them up and figure out how they're going to change us, how they're going to mold us, and how they're going to make us look just a little bit more like Jesus. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, friends, I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you for tuning into our message this week in The Gathering. We hope you found it meaningful and life-giving. As always, you're invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., either in person here in the chapel or online. If you want to know more about who we are at Bluff Park United Methodist Church, you're invited to check out our website. There you'll find out who we are, what we have going on, and how you can be a part of it. As always, friends, if there's anything that we can do for you, you're invited to reach out to us. We are here to help you and support you in any way that we can. We hope that you're having a great week, and we look forward to seeing you soon.